This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. WVEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation, plus MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. Hi, I'm Dan Tucker, executive producer of Reset. With the recent mass shooting in Texas, today we wanted to focus our conversation on public reaction, what's been on your minds, and how we might cope with these tragedies. Sasha began the show sitting down with Brian Kirkpatrick from Texas Public Radio with more details on the massacre. This, as we know, is a developing story, so just give us the latest. What we know at this point is around 11.32 yesterday, Texas time, midday, uh, an 18-year-old man uh, entered the school, barricaded himself into a room, and shot several students. We know that 19 children are dead, two teachers are dead, and also the, the gunman himself. He was shot and killed by law enforcement during an exchange. And now the community is trying to you know, come together and or at least try to start the healing process. There were several vigil, uh, prayer vigils within just hours uh, last night and this afternoon, there's a blood drive at Uvalde Memorial Hospital up until around 3.30 this afternoon. How was the shooter able to enter the building? Do we know that? Uh, yes, he, he uh, just uh, ran into the building. Apparently, before this incident happened at the school, he shot his uh, 66-year-old uh, grandmother, uh, who's now at a San Antonio hospital in, in serious condition, uh, Police made their way into the school and uh, and killed and killed the gunman. So the doors at the school were were unlocked. He was just able to enter. Yeah, yes, yeah, so it's very small town atmosphere. This, the school has about six hundred students and uh, focuses on second through fourth grades. So most of these uh, students that were killed are we're talking nine and ten years old. It's a mm-hmm. very sad situation. When were the parents and families able to reunite with with their kids? They set up away from the school at the uh, Uvalde Civic Center, kind of in the center of town, and that way uh, parents that were wondering about the whereabouts or the conditions of, of their students could uh, meet with law enforcement uh, at the Civic Center. And We saw several incidents of people streaming out crying and uh, just a very, very sad sight in, in such a close-knit community. And we are beginning today to uh, to learn the names of some of the children who lost their lives and also about fourth grade teachers Eva Mireles and Irma Garcia, who were also killed. What else do we know so far, Brian, about victims? Uh, we do know that here in San Antonio that there's, a, in addition to his grandmother's hospitalized in serious condition, there's a, a, a few students here, we believe uh, uh, three nine- and ten-year-old girls, the ones in Sirius, the two others, uh, fortunately, are in, are in good condition. But we're still getting a lot of uh, uh, patient information. I think we'll learn more to that as the day goes on because there was so much uh, 
journalistic effort focused on, you know, the shooting itself yesterday and the community reaction. Mm -hmm. Texas Governor Greg Abbott addressed the state of Texas following this tragedy. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Our job is multifold. First, to make sure we address exactly what happened to this crime scene. And then second, to make sure we take that information and do everything that is necessary to ensure that crime scenes like this are not going to be repeated in the future and that we're going to be able to ensure the safety and security of our schools. Brian, what else have we heard from the governor and local law enforcement? You know, they were uh, the local police department, the school district police department, actually uh, would only confirm to us that they actually had uh, people that were dead or wounded. They were very slow to come forth with actual numbers, leaving a lot of that up to the governor's office. Um, there is grief counseling set up today at the Civic Center. Uh, teachers are encouraged, and anybody, in fact, in the community is encouraged to take advantage of that as well. So there's grief counseling being offered. The district superintendent, we know, said that classes for the rest of the school year have been canceled at Robb Elementary. How are other schools in the area responding? Well, uh, as a matter of fact, the, the superintendent said uh, Yesterday, effectively, that would be the last day of school. They were they were sadly ready to go on a happy uh, summer break on the 26th. They had graduation ceremonies coming up for the district on the 27th, and they're hitting a pause now and cons- you know considering all that in in light of uh, what has happened there. Well, in an address to the nation last night, President Biden called on lawmakers to to stand up to gun manufacturers and their allies. Last year. Governor Abbott signed more than a dozen bills that actually made it easier to buy or own or access guns in your state. So how likely is it that Texas lawmakers will pass gun control legislation in response to this shooting in Uvalde? I I sadly just don't think it's very likely. Texas is a, a gun state. Uh, there's a big gun culture here. I think we're most likely to see uh, in these situations uh, – I know that uh, I'm a former high school teacher myself, and I know on our campus we had two armed police officers on the campus in the high school at all times. So I think we might see, you know, some kind of response like that. I do know there's a school district near San Antonio that actually allows teachers to, to carry guns. So it's wow. it's going to it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Brian Kirkpatrick is with Texas Public Radio. Brian, thank you so much for checking in with us. Thank you. Let's turn now to someone who can help us process this tragedy and figure out how and if we can talk about it with our families and our kids. But first, a reminder, we are taking your calls too. Tell us what's on your mind and heart this morning, one day after one of the worst mass shootings on record. Let's hear from a couple callers who are standing by. Josephine in Indiana is first up. Hi, Josephine. Hi, how are you? Doing as as best as I can. How about you? I'm I'm okay. Uh, you know, I just wanted to comment and, you know, every time, I, I hate that I have to say every time this happens, but every time this happens, I am continuously thinking about other processes that are in place that address the health and safety of the, of Americans, of, of, of our nation. And I, I, I see things on the news and I see every time there's a recall for this is so basic, but every time there's a recall for lettuce or romaine or something, I think the government has put things in place to be able to track to the area, to the location. Um, there's a system. It, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, how long uh, it took for this system to get put into place, but there's a system in place. And for, health, for the health and safety 
of people. Mm -hmm. Why is there not a system in place? I mean, that's what it boils down to. We still have a pen and paper method. Nobody is threatening to take things away from people. What we are, what people, and I say we, because obviously that's something I believe in, but what people are wanting is a system that is put into place that could stop potential issues that will affect the health and safety of others. And that is what I continuously go back to. Josephine, a question on many of our minds this morning. Thank you for, for taking the time to call in. Let's hear from Taylor in Deerfield. Hi, Taylor. Hi, how are you? Doing okay. What's on your mind? I'm just, I'm a mother of an incoming second grader, an incoming kindergartner, and an eight-month-old baby. And I'm just absolutely enraged. And the sentiment is echoed by many of my friends, parents all over the world, people who are considering having children you know, all over America, I I believe and I will scream and I will fight to say that politicians who take money from the gun lobby are trading children's lives for dollars. We need to stop allowing politicians to accept money from the gun lobby. That should be a line drawn in the sand. If we do nothing, we are doing a disservice to all children in America. We are saying we don't care about their lives. Taylor, take care of yourself and those babies today. Joining us now is uh, Dr. Tali Raviv, Associate Director of the Center for Childhood Resilience at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. Hi, Dr. Raviv. Thanks for joining. Happy to be here today. The last time we checked in with the Center for Childhood Resilience was actually in December about a school shooting in Michigan. And we know there have been more than two dozen more of these since then. And this one in Texas, unfortunately, won't be the last. So what's on your mind right now, doctor? Well, I think um, the first thing I'll say just personally is I have been on this show. I've been on other shows so many times in the past decade that I've been doing this work to talk about how do we help our kids heal? How do we do better to prevent these incidents from happening? And so I just feel tired. I I really, you know, and I think that that's what a lot of people around the country are feeling, that this is an enormous tragedy. Um, It's it's on the heels of a very difficult time in schools um, already this past year. And I always say, you know, we, we have a lot of things that we can do to help our children be resilient. That's in the name of our center. Um, and I can't help asking myself, why do our children need to be resilient in the face of these tragedies? Why can't we as adults, rather than focusing on helping them be resilient, mm-hmm. focus on helping preventing the need? Doctor, where do we begin talking about these kinds of tragedies with our, with our kids? What do you suggest? Well, uh, sadly, I think um, schools are, are getting better at understanding that these things need to be addressed proactively in a developmentally appropriate way because especially in today's society with the presence of media, but even even without that, adults are talking about this. Adults are shaken in many cases visibly, as you said. You know, I have had to hold back tears many times. And so it is really important that we um, acknowledge that our kids have probably heard something. Mm -hmm. And so we need, as adults, we need to understand what do they know, 
what do they um, need from us? So first checking in with ourselves, acknowledging our own feelings, making sure we're ready for the conversation. And then asking kind of open-ended questions. What have you heard? What are your questions? Um, so that we hear, we avoid giving too many details, but we hear what's on their mind. Um, we, and most important, that we reassure them that adults are here to support them in whatever they may be feeling and to help them, uh, help keep them safe. What does the conversation look like with teens? Yeah, so oftentimes teens, you know, as we've seen in so many ways, even the Parkland, um, the Parkland youth, but 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 in many cases, climate activists, um, teens are often looking for a way to get involved to change the systems that are causing this violence to happen. And so thinking about ways that they can be really actively involved in um, things like fundraising, um, being involved in their community, being involved in advocacy, whatever that looks like for them based on their beliefs. Um, I think that really the, the principles are the same about how to talk to them, acknowledging their feelings, answering their questions, providing information. But with teens especially, I think um, giving them some ways that they can take action to make uh, make things better in their community. Let's jump back to the phones. Here's Andy in Lincoln Park. Hi, Andy. Hi. Um, this is hard to talk about. Uh, I Really, after Sandy Hook, society made a decision that children's death is going to be the cost of doing business in America, that we've accepted a certain level of carnage because it's good for the economy, it's good for business, and we are allowing this. This is difficult to talk about. I had the uh, opportunity a few years ago, uh, right after uh, Parkland, to meet um, a Parkland father and uh, just you know, hysterical crying when I met him. He had to comfort me. But we all should have, after Sandy Hook, Mm -hmm. been so enraged that we shouldn't have allowed ourselves to even accept any aspect of children carnage. These were kindergartners who were killed at Sandy Hook, and we just went to work the next day. Mm -hmm. There was no disgust of such a level. We have just accepted it's the cost of doing business. Children are cheap, children are going to die, but we can still have our 401ks. And once we accept that, then all of this is just talking in the wind. And that's the thing. You even said earlier, we know this is going to happen again. This Mm -hmm. isn't the last one. Why do we have to accept this? But we do. It's It's just part of doing business. It's part of life in America. Kids are going to die, but our 401ks are going to go up. It's good for the economy. We shouldn't vote for any politician that accepts this. But they all accept it. Like I said, it's just part of doing business. If it costs people money, then they'll stop it. They could fix this problem tomorrow if they get rid of liability uh, coverage for gun owners and, and gun manufacturers. If people would sue gun owners if they get shot, it's going to cost gun owners money and gun companies money. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they're going to change overnight. But nobody wants to do that. <sighs> Thanks for your call, Andy. Appreciate you. Doctor, can you tell us about the uh, the trauma-related disorders that, that could present themselves in kids after a shocking event like this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for many young people who are exposed to this type of violence, um, 
what you what you may see in the immediate aftermath is a lot of common reactions to stress and trauma, difficulty sleeping, change in normal routines, more cleanliness, cheerfulness, uh, intrusive thoughts or nightmares, uh, physical symptoms, feeling jumpy and on edge. And, and those are normal responses to a trauma. And oftentimes with support, they will lessen over time. For, for some youth, however, and families, um, those responses will continue for, you know, three to six months. And, and that's the point where you really want to say, okay, I, I don't see this going away without targeted treatment. Uh, the good news is we have really well-established treatments for trauma for youth and adults, um, even really young children, that do really help to reduce those post-traumatic stress symptoms. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note here that uh, I think dating back to some of the research that came out after 9-11, we started to see that there could be youth that are further removed, that were not witnesses to the attack, for example, but are connected in other ways or watched um, media coverage. If they watch a lot of media coverage, that some of those um, young people can also have trauma symptoms. Should, should there so be I certain think limits? It's really important should to there, limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there should be certain limits on on how much media we we have our children consume. Yes, and probably the adults as well. I would say we are not immune from this, and I think if people feel connected, if they know people um, in in Texas uh, in this community, if they are educators themselves. Um, if they have a trauma history before, if they've been in part of other mass violence incidents, then you're more vulnerable. And so those people should really take good care of themselves during this time and reach out for support if they need it. Here is John on the line. He's calling from Mundelein. Hi, John. Welcome to Reset. Hi, thank you very much for taking my call. I'm going to try to remain calm. I'm very angry today, like so many people are. Um, there's a a truism, a slogan we hear from the pro-gun advocates on the right. They like to say more guns equals less crime. If that was ever going to be true, the United States wouldn't have any crime at all by now because we sure as hell have the most guns. The reality we are facing is that the Republican Party, the political right in this country, is more interested in regulating what a teacher says about gay and transgender people in a classroom than they are with regulating guns that are periodically used to slaughter children in a classroom. I'm talking about mental health, not just of the shooters, but of the political right in this country. People have convinced themselves that they need a gun to protect themselves against crime or against tyranny. And it doesn't matter how many classrooms are filled with dead children. They still believe it. There is mass insanity on the political right. You just had a reporter on your show saying that after after uh, the shooting in El Paso and after the shooting in Odessa, mm-hmm. they actually made it easier for people to get guns in Texas. If that isn't crazy, I don't know what is. The country has lost its mind. Every country has, has mental illness. Every country has angry young people. Every country has racial division. Everybody has someone who would potentially you know, snap and use a gun. What they don't have are the guns. That's the obvious difference between us and every other developed nation. It is so obvious that to deny it is crazy. The, the political right in this country is crazy. Thanks for calling, John. Take care of yourself. Dr. Tali Raviv of the Center for Childhood Resilience at Lurie Children's Hospital is still with us. You know, doctor, if, if a child is distressed for, for a longer period of time after 
an incident like this, uh, what signs should us as parents look out for? And what steps should we take to help our kids cope? Yeah, so uh, the oftentimes, you know, we would, for, for distress when we see in children, we look for similar signs across, regardless of whether it's related to this particular incident or mass violence or any other kind of adjustment issue. The first thing that I would always look for um, that we see most commonly and are easy to see is difficulty sleeping. So not wanting to sleep by themselves, having nightmares, um, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep. Um, Those are often very visible signs that parents can see. Uh, Clinginess and tearfulness would be additional signs. And then difficulty going about their daily business. So not wanting to do things they used to enjoy. Um, feeling more withdrawn, isolating themselves, um, not 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 uh, not doing well in school. I know school year is is about to end, mm-hmm. which is a concern as well because we really need to have adults um, who are keeping an eye on children during those summer months, have activities for them to keep them busy because that is um, a really important way for them to cope and heal. Um, when they're dealing with with stress and trauma. And and you're you're hearing it from our callers, you know, as parents, as adults, we are also navigating our own emotions right now, doctor. So how do we manage that while supporting our children? That's the the hardest part, I think, about being a parent when you're no longer just worrying about your own uh, mental health and well-being, but now you're also responsible for, for your children, and sometimes that's really difficult. And so I would encourage adults, you know, we have to take care of ourselves so that we can support our children and, and be good role models. And so adults should be reaching out to their support networks when you're feeling angry, when you're feeling sad. Um, get whatever help you need, including mental health care, if that is what you need. And I think it's okay for children to see our feelings. I think we have an opportunity here to appropriately share with our children, you know, I am sad too. And here's what I do when I'm sad. I'm feeling really angry too. Do you want to do this with me? I I think one thing that would make me feel better is to get engaged in this uh, this, uh, activity or this fundraiser or whatever fits for your family. So, So trying to cope with your children, modeling good coping, and making sure that if you need more than that, that they're not your support, that you, you're reaching out um, to, to your support networks. That is Dr. Tali Raviv, Associate Director of the Center for Childhood Resilience at Lurie Children's Hospital. Thank you so much for making the time, Doc. Yeah, thank you. It's a sobering day to be here. Next, we move to gun legislation and its failures. Sasha spoke with Ashley Parker, the White House bureau chief for the Washington Post. But before we get to that, here's Dominique on the West Side. I agree with the frustration in everyone else, but I'm a black woman born in America with a black family and a black husband and black children. So the fear that everyone is experiencing, I was born into it. And to be just afraid to be in society that someone would try to hurt me for just one reason. And so the thing I think about America is this, yes, we need a policy change and federal gun laws, but no mass amount of deaths, whether it was by slaughter or whether it was by uh, COVID, has changed the ideology of nearly 50 cent, 50% of Americans. So we can change the laws. Laws change all the time. We weren't sorry about 
black bodies hanging from trees. We weren't sorry about mass graves of Indian children. There's never reconciliation in this country because that's 50% of Americans that are clinging to their white privilege do not want the, any government to tell them that they are fit or unfit to carry a weapon or anything else. We can blame it on the politicians, but the politicians have voters and they're pandering to voters. The ideology in America has to change because we can talk about it to a blue in the face. But what we have to remember is historically Mm -hmm. no mass death, not one mass death has changed the ideology in America. Thank you, Dominique. Joining us now to explain what is behind this rise in mass shootings in the U.S. is Ashley Parker, White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Hi, Ashley. Welcome. Thank you. So as we've mentioned, we're just a few months shy of uh, the 10th anniversary of the mass shooting in Sandy Hook. You and other Washington Post reporters, you recently looked back at the past 10 years uh, looking at gun control attempts. What did you find? So what we found was basically at the federal level, at least, and, you know, different things are being done at the states. But in terms of federal legislation that would have to pass through Congress that in the, you know, almost now nearly 10 years um, after Sandy Hook, that just about no meaningful gun legislation has passed. Um, And this has led to a pretty grim and cynical uh, but understandable outlook um, among Democrats on Capitol Hill, who sort of which each new shooting and mass shooting and and tragedy sort of say, look, if we couldn't do anything after Sandy Hook when, you know, 20 kindergartners were killed, we're never going to be able to do anything. Um, I will add for this story, we talked to uh, Senator Chris Murphy, who, as I heard you just mention, you know, had just been elected, actually, the senator um, from Connecticut, where Sandy Hook happened. He had actually, uh, he had not even been sworn in yet uh, when the tragedy happened, and he became the senator that January. And he is actually someone who is optimistic. His argument is that he sort of views Sandy Hook as a before and after movement and Mm -hmm. that it takes time to build, you know, what is controversial, uh, polarized social change. And very rarely do people go from point A to point Z. And the NRA and these gun groups have been building their movement for decades. And, you know, the the gun control groups are just nine years in and change is coming slower than they would like. But he thinks it's a galvanizing issue. He thinks it's a winning issue mm-hmm. uh, for Democrats. But I will say he is very much in the minority view on that. In your piece, Ashley, you, you talk about how Biden, who was then vice president under former President Barack Obama, how he was instrumental in getting two senators together to create a background check measure. That was Democrat Joe Manchin of uh, West Virginia and Republican Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. What was the motivation behind that? Well, so so actually, um, yes, basically Sandy Hook happens. And five days later, uh, Barack Obama, who's president at the time, holds a news conference to basically say this can't stand. This is America. We can't live like this. And I am deputizing my number two. Joe Biden to take on the issue of guns. And there were sort of two parallel tracks, one where Joe Biden um, was really instrumental. And that was sort of he came up with a proposal. Obama said, I want a proposal by no later than January. And Biden did just that, um, came up with a proposal, a, a very comprehensive proposal that included 23 executive actions that Obama signed 
at that moment. Um, but the truth is executive actions do not go as far as legislation was. So there was a sort of parallel effort on Capitol Hill um, that Biden was also a part of, but but far less instrumental in. And this was really driven by uh, Joe Manchin initially, who was just sort of so, like everyone, devastated that this could happen to 20 kindergartners. Um, you know, and, and he was someone who said, look, when I, growing up in West Virginia, I didn't know a single person who did not own a gun, right? Like, I understand this culture, yeah. but I also understand something needs to change. He set out looking for a Republican partner. He ultimately ended up with uh, Pat Toomey. They came up with background check legislation. Um, Biden was kind of monitoring from afar. There was some good reason for that, which was that there was a sense that if Obama and Biden got too uh, too heavily involved, that would spook Republicans who were not fans of the administration. Um, but ultimately, that failed because most Republicans voted against it, and also four red state Democrats voted against it. Let's jump to the phones. Here is Sue in Northwest Indiana. Hi, Sue. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for talking about this. I'm a member of Moms Demand Action. I'm going to not cry for guns in America, and I encourage all our listeners to join us. I live in Indiana, as you noted, and we just passed our legislation against the wishes of every law enforcement agency in the state, passed legislation requiring no permits, Mm -hmm. no background checks for guns for people 18 and up. Um, Texas has passed the same legislation. Governor Abbott, who is claiming that he is uh, saddened by this tragedy, is meeting with the NRA this week. As long as, as one, some of your earlier callers said, as long as we have politicians who cravenly just give in to the gun lobby in spite of 90% op- support by Americans for background checks and sensible gun laws, we are going to continue to see this tragedy. It just breaks my heart. I'm a mother of four. Good night. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. Take care. Here's Joanne in Evanston. Hi, Joanne. Hi. Another sad day for this country. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we talk about guns and we talk about mental health and, and laws. The things we don't talk about is men and the violence in men. We have half the country trying to control women's fertility. For centuries, everybody's been trying to control women's fertility. But where are movements to control the violence that men cause? You know, uh, just imagine a day, a week, a month without a man killing somebody. You know, women are not out there mowing people down. So I think we need a national dialogue about that run by men. It can't be run by women or anybody else. And then I say, you know, I was born in World War II, and I, I live in a country, no country in my lifetime has gone to war as much as this country has. So America, you know, yeah. is not that exceptional country that we're always bragging about. Thanks for your call, Joanne. In the uh, the minute or so we have left here, Ashley, I, I mentioned that uh, recent FBI report which uh, which shows that active shooter incidents increased more than 50% last year. Do you think that this data could spark more action from politicians? Uh, no, I think I, I think it's another data point that the um, the politicians, so largely Democrats, uh, that want you know more gun control, more restrictive measures, uh, can can absolutely use and and may spur them to say you know that this is a crisis. Um, but, but again, I, I sort of come back to the view of, of what I've heard in my reporting, which is that, you know, if 
20 kindergartners getting killed. And then as I wrote in my story, you can trace it through. At this point in America, every single slice of life has been touched by gun violence. A, a black church in Charleston, a gay nightclub in Orlando, um, you know, a country music concert in Las Vegas, back-to-back mm -hmm. uh, -back shootings in majority Hispanic El Paso, and then a nightlife corridor of Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. Another Taiwanese shooting church. in a school. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, exactly. A Taiwanese church, um, Asian-American spa workers in Atlanta. You know, uh, those those human and, and devastating stories, I, I think, are far more, should be far more compelling than, a, you know, than a very fascinating and interesting FBI report. But when you see those pictures, of little kids as we're seeing now across the screen is I, I can barely even look at them. Um, that would be the thing that would need to force change. And, and so far it hasn't. Ashley Parker is the White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining, Ashley. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's Reset. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest on 91.5 WBEZ Chicago. If you like this podcast, follow us on Twitter at WBEZ Reset or check us out on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.